Well, I'm going to sit down. I had surgery this week, so I'm still recovering from that. And standing sometimes just, I, I don't want that to be um, an impediment. So um, we'll all sit together. We'll sit on the promises of the Lord tonight. A father was passing by his son's bedroom and was astonished to see the bed was nicely made and everything was picked up. And then he saw an envelope propped up very prominently on the pillow. It was addressed, Dad. Well, with the worst premonition you can imagine, he opened the envelope and read the letter with trembling hands. And it said, Dear Dad, it is with great regret and sorrow that I'm writing you. I had to elope with my new girlfriend because I wanted to avoid a scene with mom and you. I've been finding real passion with Stacy, and she is so nice, but I knew you would not approve of her because of her piercings, tattoos, tight motorcycle clothes, and because she is so much older than I am. Y'all can breathe. But it's not only the passion, Dad. She's pregnant. Stacy said that we will be very happy. She owns a trailer in the woods and has a stack of firewood for the whole winter. We share a dream of having many more children. Stacy has opened my eyes to the fact that marijuana doesn't really hurt anyone. We'll be growing it for ourselves and trading it with the other people in the commune for all the cocaine and ecstasy we want. In the meantime, we'll pray that science will find a cure for AIDS so Stacy can get better. She sure deserves it. Don't worry, Dad, I'm 15 and I know how to take care of myself. Someday, I'm sure we'll be back to visit so you can get to know your many grandchildren. Love your son. P.S. Dad, none of the above is true. I'm over at Jason's house. I just wanted to remind you that there are worse things in life than the school report that's on the kitchen table. (laughs) Call when it's safe for me to come home. You know, when we're thinking about family, there are worse things than sometimes our imaginations could create, and there are better things than our imaginations can create. Tonight, we want to think just a few moments about the journey of traveling together, but in a way that brings us a different kind of perspective, and our focus is on Ruth. The book of Ruth, which begins with the story of a journey that went from Bethlehem to Moab and then back from Moab to Bethlehem. And it involved a wonderful daughter-in-law and a wonderful mother-in-law and a husband, sons, and then another daughter-in-law. But in the course of that trip of having to leave Bethlehem to go to Moab, which was really not a good place for Jews to go because... They were enemies of the Judeans, but they had to go there because they had to eat. They had to survive. And in the course of being there, Naomi, whose name means pleasant, lost her husband, Elimelech. And then sons who married Moabite women, they also died. And it was in that moment that food was then abundant in Bethlehem, that then the mother-in-law decided that it was time to return home. 
And as she goes on that journey, which was a very short journey, was only about 30 to 60 miles, but it happened to be over very treacherous uh, terrain going up and mountainous, and so it took up to five to seven days to do that. The three women were thinking all along, what is going to happen now? A widow, an older widow, and now two younger widows. In those days, that was not a good scenario. Who was going to take care of them? And when they finally reached um, their parting place, Naomi said, the two of you go back. Back and possibly find other husbands and have a future, have a life. But there's no future. There's no life with me. In fact, she told her daughter-in-laws that her name was Naomi that now it was Mara, meaning bitterness, because the Lord had changed his view of her, and now she was dealing with all of this very difficult situation. And both of the daughter-in-laws clung to her and cried, but Naomi insisted, and Orpah, her one daughter-in-law, left her with tears and departed to Moab. But Ruth, said these very well-known words that declared what she really felt about her mother-in-law. And now, we may have had lots of jokes about mother-in-laws and daughter-in-laws, but when we read these words, we're moved by them. Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. And that's when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her. She stopped urging her. And they returned together to Bethlehem. You know, family is a tricky thing. In thinking about family, there's a system, a family system called the Bowen theory. And it views family as an emotional unit, intensely connected. So much so that it's not easy to extract and change the dynamics of a family when it has understood how it relates. And that's why family counseling is so hard. That's why we had five murders in Scottsdale and and Phoenix, because family systems are so hard. Because when a family breaks up, there is all this incredible emotional attachment And if it's not handled correctly, if people feel as if somehow they're negated and devalued and unloved and pushed to the outer circles of separation from their loved ones, they start to think desperate things and start to do desperate things. And even here, where there is this incredible woman of faith, Naomi, 
she is caught up in her bitterness, caught up in her loss. She's lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. And she feels as if she is alone. And the Lord has turned her face against her. Even a woman of faith like Naomi, who has made such an incredible impact on her daughter-in-laws who were worshiping pagan gods, that they don't want to leave her. Even she can be affected with this great depth of loss and wondering about the future. What is it that we need to think about tonight in just a quick meditation? Well, there was an 18th century Irish novelist and playwright and poet. He said this, life is a journey that must be traveled no matter how bad the roads and accommodations. Once you start out, you're committed. But it's then how life changes us or we determine that life will become what we want it to be. Joyce Meyer, who is a wonderful speaker and who has sometimes a, a great way of saying you know, things that we know, but in a way that really gets our attention, she said, only means a dip, makes a difficult journey more difficult. You may have been given a cactus, but you don't have to sit on it. You know, sometimes we just like sitting on our cactuses because it feels good to be in pain. This week, I would say that there are times when it's okay to be in pain when I have my family there kind of ministering to me, asking what I need. Do I need another ice pack? Do I need some food? Do I need something to drink? Do I need to be taken care of? But when I'm by myself, my dog is no help whatsoever. And I start to begin to feel sorry for myself. Here I am. They've told me, the doctor said, two weeks. Don't lift anything over five pounds. Do you know how light five pounds is? It's nothing. My 12, 13 pair of shoes are 12 pounds. What was I going to do? Walk around in my flip-flops and bare feet? Sometimes we get so turned inward, so isolated by the struggle that we're going through, by the journey that we begin to think negatively. We begin to see negatively. We begin to react negatively. We begin to see even the kind things that people are doing and misrepresent them, misinterpret them. The journey can be difficult even when we are together as a family. And not only a individual nuclear families, or a mixture of families, because we have about five different categories now of families that people fit into. There's probably half of the United States that's a nuclear family, and even in the world. We realize that a lot of problems happen in families, that are created in families when they're supposed to be love and caring and nurturing of one another, because we still deal with sin. We still are imperfect people. We still have great expectations over somebody else's doing for us. And we begin to be negative in our view, not only of one another, but even of God. Because we are what we are. We, as the scripture says, we're dust. And so we react. We have feelings. This emotional connection, which often we play down, 
is very, very, very powerful. That's why, again, we had these murders from a man who then, after a period of time, became very ill and thought wild, crazy thoughts, even so much so that he saw people who were not even involved in his life and in his problems as his enemies and murdered them. We live in a world of incredible need. Do you know that there are 54 million Americans who suffer from some form of mental disorder? It's sort of the, the hidden thing. I mean, years ago, we didn't talk about that at all. In my family of, of generations past, if there was anyone a, a little off, that was covered up. If there was a dependency, that was put in the closet. If there was something that happened, someone took their life, things were explained in a way that sort of nullified facing the struggle and the fact that mental illness can be familial in, in some ways. That's a, that's a part of it. And a mental illness is this, is a disease that causes mild to severe disturbances in thought and or behavior resulting in an inability to cope with life's ordinary demands and routines. Do you know that people can come to church, be raised in the church, and never really understand the gospel? Now you say, how is that possible? We have crosses all over our churches. We talk about grace and mercy and love and forgiveness and we come to communion and we talk about the Bible. But somehow, young people can miss what really is happening. That God is speaking a message to them. That you and I are the targets of his magnificent love. And the Holy Spirit doesn't give up simply because we mess up and we break that bond with him. He doesn't give up. As long as we have breath in our body, God is working to restore us. That's what he's committed to. He has begun a good work in you and me. It happened for all of us who were baptized as children or later in life. That is God's promise. We talk about that being our statement of faith. No, no, we've got that mixed up. Baptism is God's invitation and his mark on us saying, I'm going to do in you what you cannot do for yourself. What you will see in, in moments of clarity and in moments of disturbed vagrancy and distortion because life overwhelms us sometimes. Thoughts. That's why the scripture invites us to make er take every thought captive to Christ. Capture that thought like you would the bubbles in a child's play toy. Capture that thought. Capture that thought. That thought isn't good. Take it captive to Christ. Christ owns that. It's not yours anymore. He is the one who is going to give you the thoughts. But we can see even 
in this situation where we're overcome with grief in the journey and an emotional grief, we can think crazy things. Now, we know the rest of the story because you read it. So you know that God had his hand on Ruth and Naomi, Mara. God was purposing that promise long ago that then Ruth would become part of the promise of God. She was a Moabitess. She should have been outside the promise of God, but she was included. You see, God never gave the word for just the Jews. It was for the whole world. That's why we're sitting here. We're a fulfillment of that promise to Abraham that all of the stars of the sky and the sands of the sea would would be the representatives of people of faith, that they would come to faith. God intended with that Moabitess to bring the Savior into the world because she was the great, great granddaughter, a grandmother of King David and that whole promise of a Savior and a Messiah. What does that say to us tonight? It says that God is able to turn every situation around because it certainly shouldn't have been for Ruth and Naomi that instead of tension, they had tenderness. They had such compassion that Naomi influenced Ruth in such a way that she became a believer. That's what families are for. Families aren't for strife. Families aren't just for loneliness. Families aren't just for struggle or upheaval or things to go wrong. Families aren't just for you not to be alone sitting down at a table and eating a meal and sharing and have conversation. It's not just for noise and confusion and struggle and Christmas time and, you know, all the things that we layer on families of expectations. No, families are for the promise. Families are for the promise of Jesus Christ to unfold, to be seen and experienced. And for people to know with assurance that when they walk out of that family, that unit, that home, that they know something that's a treasure. They have not only seen it, but now they believe it for themselves. And we have family here. The church is a family. Christ is the head of the church. We use the word Concordia a lot in the Lutheran church. And that word Concordia is a name of a, originally of a, of a goddess. She was the goddess of harmony. But it's a, the Latin word for concord. It means happiness. It means um, agreeing together. It means coming together with an understanding of why we're here. That we are going to make our level best effort to respect one another, to love one another, to encourage one another, to invest in one another, and do the very things that are going to see the very best happen for that other person, even if it means sacrifice for us. That's what the family of God is all about. There's no separation of the family of God because we're all parts of the body. We're all individual parts, yes, but we are parts held together in Jesus Christ. As it is, There are many parts, but one body. Now you are the body of Christ, and each of you is a part of it. All of us 
are part of this family. We're all related. We're related here. We're related around the world. We're related to all those believers. We'll make a, a confession of the Apostles' Creed. That says that's the invisible church and the visible church. The church that has gone beyond, has gone before us, and the church that will come after us, and the church that's happening right now. We're saying we're all together, and one day we sang a song there that said, oh, Lord, we're going we're gonna to see you, and we're going to see the whole nation of the whole family of God come together. Can you imagine that? Get that in your mind's eye when you're thinking about dealing with individual problems and struggles and decisions in the church because we're all family in Christ. And what are we as the family? We are the family of love, and we are to love not only one another, love the Lord with all of our heart, mind, and soul, love our neighbor as ourself, but we are to love, in that sense, the world. How will they know that Christ is a reality because love has changed us, because we have experienced the love and forgiveness in Jesus Christ? I want to share with you a little, close with this, a little letter that was um, written in 2006 by Jamie Torkowski, um, he worked for a very a couple name brand um, T-shirt companies, big big T-shirt companies, and he didn't set out to start a a nonprofit. All he wanted to do was to help a friend and to tell her the story and tell her story. When he met Renee Yohi. She was struggling with addiction and depression, self-injury, and suicidal thoughts. He wrote about the five days that he spent with her before she entered a treatment center. And then he sold a lot of T-shirts to cover the cost. He calls this article and the nonprofit organization to write love on her arm. Because one of the things that she would do to herself was cut herself with a razor. Pedro the Lion is loud in the speakers and the city waits just outside our open windows. She sits and sings, legs crossed in the passenger seat. Her pretty voice hiding in the volume. Music is a safe place and Pedro is her favorite. It hits me that she won't see the skyline for several weeks and we will be without her. I lean forward knowing this will be written, and I ask what she'd say if her story had an audience. She smiles. Tell them to look up. Tell them to remember the stars. I would rather write her a song because songs don't wait to resolve and because songs mean so much to her. Stories wait for endings, but songs are brave things bold enough to sing when all they know is darkness. These words, like most words, will be written next to midnight between hurricane and harbor as both claim to save her. Renee is 19. When I meet her, cocaine is fresh in her system. She hasn't slept in 36 hours, and she won't for another 24. It is a familiar blur of coke, pot, pills, and alcohol. She has agreed to meet us, to listen, and to let us pray. We ask Renee to come with us to leave this broken night. She says she'll go to rehab tomorrow, but she isn't ready now. It is too great a change. We pray and say goodbye and it is hard to leave without her. She has known such great pain 
haunted dreams as a child, the near consent, the near constant presence of evil ever since. She has felt the touch of awful naked men, battled depression and addiction and attempted suicide. Her arms remember razor blades, 50 scars that speak of self-inflicted wounds. Six hours after I meet her, she is feeling trapped. Two groups of friends offering opposite ideas. Everyone is asleep. The sun's rising. She drinks long from a bottle of liquor, takes a razor blade from the table, and locks herself in the bathroom. She cuts herself using the blade to write screw-up large across her left forearm. The nurse at the treatment center finds the wound several hours later. The center has no detox, names her too great a risk, and does not accept her. For the next five days, she is ours to love. We become her hospital, and the possibility of healing fills our living room with life. It is unspoken, and there are only a few of us, but we will be her church, the body of Christ coming alive to meet her needs, to write love on her arms. She is full of contrast, more alive and closer to death than anyone I've known, like a Johnny Cash song or some theater star. She owns attitude and humor beyond her 19 years, and when she tells me her story, she is humble and quiet and kind, shaped by the pain of a hundred lifetimes. I sit privileged but breaking as she shares. Her life has been so dark Yet, there is some soft hope in her words, and on consecutive evenings, I watch the prettiest girls in the room tell her that she's beautiful. I think it's God reminding her. I've never walked this road, but I decide that if we're going to run a five-day rehab, it's going to be the coolest in the country. It's going to be rock and roll. We start with the basics, lots of fun, too much Starbucks and way too many cigarettes. Thursday night, she is in the balcony for Band Marino, Orlando's finest. They are indie folk fabulous, a movement disguised as a circus. She loves them and she smiles when I point out the A&R man from Atlantic Europe in town from London just to catch this show. She is in good seats when the magic beat the Sonics the next night, screaming like a lifelong fan with every Dwight Howard dunk. On the way home, we stop for more coffee and books. Blue like jazz and Annie Lamott's traveling mercies. On Saturday... The Taste of Chaos tour is in town, and I'm not even sure we can get in, but doors do open, and minutes after parking, we are on stage for Thrice, one of her favorite bands. She stands 10 feet from the drummer, smiling constantly. It is a bright moment there in the music as light and rain collide above the stage. It feels like healing. It is certainly hope. Sunday night is church, and many gather after the service to pray for Renee. This her last night before entering rehab. Some are strangers, but all are friends tonight. The prayers move from broken to bold, all encouraging. We're talking to God, but I think as much we're talking to her, telling her she's loved, saying she does not go alone. One among us knows her best. Ryan sits in the corner strumming an acoustic guitar, singing songs she's inspired. After church, our house fills with friends. There are for a few more moments before goodbye. Everyone has some gift for her, some note or hug or piece of encouragement. She pulls me aside and tells me she would like to give me something. I smile, surprised, wondering what it could be. We walk through the crowded living room to the garage and her stuff. She hands me her last razor blade, tells me it is the one she used to cut her arm And her last lines of cocaine five nights before, she's had it 
with her ever since. Shares that tonight will be the hardest night and she shouldn't have it. I hold it carefully, thank her, and know instantly that this moment, this gift will stay with me. It hits me to wonder if this great feeling is what Christ knows when we surrender our broken hearts. When we trade death for life. As we arrive at the treatment center, she finishes, the stars are always out there, but we miss them in the dirt and clouds. We miss them in the storms. Tell them to remember hope. We have hope. I have watched life come back to her, and it's been a privilege. When our time with her begins, began, someone suggested shifts, that, but that is the language of business. Life, a love, is something better. I have been challenged and changed, reminded that love is that simple answer to so many of our hardest questions. Don Miller says, we're called to hold our hands against the wounds of a broken world to stop the bleeding. I agree so greatly. We often ask God to show up. We pray prayers of rescue. Perhaps God would ask us to be that rescue, to be his body, to move for things that matter. He is not invisible when we come alive. I might be simple, but more and more, I believe God works in love, speaks in love, is revealed in our love. I have seen that this week, and honestly, it has been simple. Take a broken girl, treat her like a famous princess, give her the best seats in the house, buy her coffee and cigarettes for the coming down, books and bathroom things for the days ahead. Tell her something true when all she's known are lies. Tell her God loves her. Tell her about forgiveness, the possibility of freedom. Tell her she, has, she was made to dance in white dresses. All these things are true. We are only asked to love, to offer hope to the many hopeless. We don't get to choose all the endings, but we are asked to play the rescuers. We won't solve all mysteries, and our hearts will certainly break in such a vulnerable life, but it is the best way. We were made to be lovers bold in broken places, pouring ourselves out again and again until we're called home. I have learned so much in one week with one brave girl. She's alive now in the patience and safety of rehab, covered in marks of madness, but choosing to believe that God makes things new, that he meant hope and healing in the stars. She would ask you to remember. In the journey, this is the invitation it is good to come. It is good to sing. It is good to praise. It is good to hear. It is good to stand. It is good to pray. It is good to speak the words of faith. It is good to come now and receive communion. But then what matters is that broken world that we go out to, that we live with, that neighbor there, that neighbor there, that neighbor there, that family member over there, that family member over there, the people that God by his grace, has planned for us to inter interact with, intercede for, and to intercept. And he goes with us in his powerful presence, his promises of love and faithfulness, his life, as we have been freed in him, and know that with certainty, we are invited to extend that freedom to someone else. As you come tonight, as you receive the body and blood of Christ, it cost him everything. But he did it because he loves you. 
He loves me. He loves a broken world. And he's still making a difference in our world because of believers like you and me. What a privilege that is. May we be the people that depend on the Lord to supply us all that we need to do exactly what he's inviting us to do. It starts here with the family of faith, praying and loving one another. And then it extends by his bounty every day, every moment, because he's completely sufficient and able to supply all of our needs in Christ Jesus. May you do that with joy. May you do that with humbleness. May you do that with an excitement to see that God is changing lives and that sometimes he will let you see the ending as you are doing the work of the beginning. But he is the one doing the work. All praise and glory to him and strength to each one of you as you live out your faith. We receive our offering.